Two and a Half Admins, Episode 10. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And before we get started, just a plug for the Open ZFS Developer Summit. Yeah, uh, so this is online this year for obvious reasons, but October 6th and 7th in the Pacific time zone, and likely means I don't have to get up early, but registration is free. Uh, you can attend by just watching the live stream uh, without registering if you want, but if you register, you'll get the URLs to actually join uh, the Zoom calls and so on and, and participate in the hallway track, and there's going to be a hackathon as part of the second day. Uh, so if you want to join a team and actually maybe get your hands dirty and learning a bit about the internals of ZFS and so on, I uh, highly recommend it. There's... Uh, the hackathon will have stuff for everybody. So if you just want to help uh, improve the website or uh, work on the man pages or documentation or examples or whatever, or if you want to actually implement a new feature or something, uh, you know, a lot of the features that have ever been added to OpenZFS started out as somebody's afternoon hackathon project at the conference. All right. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. Let's do a bit of news. The first one is something you wrote about, Jim. This is Seed Studios Odyssey. I thought I'd written it wrong in the doc because it's seed with three E's. Seed. <laughs> it's it's basically a mini PC for hackers. It's got um, the GPIO, but it is x86 based. So you're not kind of restricted as to what images you can flash on it. You can just install any standard x86 image. And this got me thinking, we've kind of been a bit down on Raspberry Pis and ARM boards generally in the past. And now I can kind of see why. I didn't realize that these boards were a thing, really. Yeah, I've played with a lot of the little, uh, you know, ARM system-on-chip boards. Uh, Oddly enough, I've never owned an actual Pi, but uh, I've had BeagleBones and uh, various flavors of Odroid, specifically because they tended to outperform the Pis, and I knew that performance was going to be a big issue for me. But they've still always felt lacking in one way or another. Um, they also feel pretty restrictive in that you usually can't just install whatever distribution you want to. You know, even if you're on Linux and in theory your distribution is supported, you typically have to start out, you know, from an image that's specifically designed for that piece of hardware that you're using. And uh, it's a little annoying. Whereas if you don't actually need, you know, the uh, the ARM specific stuff. Just a regular x86 mini PC is a lot easier to live with. You can just download an ISO, install from it, and do everything just as you normally would. This one looks especially interesting because they kind of designed it with that compatibility stuff in mind. Like it's specifically the 40-pin Raspberry Pi compatible GPIO plus a 28-pin Arduino header. So it means a lot of those interesting things you saw people could do with a Pi or an Arduino, you could do with this, but you can run more regular software, whatever OS you want, uh, and have much more standard stuff uh, or be able to use it for something else as well. And I really love to see dual real Ethernet ports. First thing everybody always talks about when it's something like a little embedded board like a Raspberry Pi or something, oh, I want to make a router. It's like, well, it doesn't have two real Ethernet ports, so you're not going to make a real router. <laughs> this has two real Ethernet ports and the well-supported Intel Wi-Fi. That means you could actually make a nice router out of this. And with the GPIO and stuff, you could actually have lights, uh, like a panel of lights that actually show, you know, what's going on in it and, and other interesting stuff that I've experimented. Like um, there was a TP-Link uh, set of routers that was the right CPU, uh, MIPS CPU and so on to be able to run FreeBSD and solder a serial port on and flash your USB image on it and be able to blink the lights on the front panel and so on. And I was like, yeah, but... This isn't great, but with something that's x86, it's just everything gets much easier. 
Yeah, and we were able to mention too, it's not just that it's two real Ethernet ports, it's two Intel gigabit Ethernet ports, not Realtek. Not Realtek or uh, what's a Marvel or some other thing that's yeah. going to be a, a constant headache. Yeah, and so the, the Realtek is usually not as big of an issue under Linux as it is under FreeBSD, assuming you have one of the chipsets that's actually directly supported and you don't have to compile your own driver. But, um, you know, even with the better supported Realtek chipsets, I know. BSD tends to have more issues with them. But again, not a problem. Actual Intel gigabit just works. Mm -hmm. But you've got two issues here. One is cost and one is power usage and performance per watt. You're going to get more out of an ARM device and it's going to cost you less in the first place. I don't know that you get more. You might get more per dollar or per watt. Hmm. But I think you'd have to put six or eight pies together to try to get what even this... uh, Gimpy Celeron would give as far as performance. It's just, yes, it's going to use a bit more power. But when you're talking about the difference between like six watts and 15 watts, does, are you going to notice? Like you're not going to notice on your power bill if you're running one of these. If you're running a hundred of them, it adds up. But, you know, if you're going to build this as a, a router or a home theater system or something, you're probably not going to notice that big of a difference in the power usage, but you are going to notice a difference in performance. This thing usually ran at about six watts as measured at the wall on the kilowatt meter. Um, you could go higher than that in the, you know, in the middle of like an actual CPU benchmark test. I, I think you get in the low teens at that point. But, you know, in terms of actual what this thing is going to be doing all the time, eh, five or six watts, it's not going to make a big impact on somebody's power bill. And I also want to make the point that it's not entirely fair to say, you know, oh, a little gimpy Celeron. I mean... Compared to an i7 or, you know, a desktop Ryzen, sure, it's it's a little gimpy, but as Celerons go, this thing's pretty freaking powerful. It made a very credible Windows 10 desktop. Because it's, it's a real quad core too, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and then I see it has a, a an LTE slot, so you can put a SIM card in it. Uh, so suddenly it gets all kinds of interesting things you can do with it. Correct. Now, you do still need a modem. It's got the SIM card slot, but it doesn't have a modem on board. You uh, uh, you need to get an M2 modem for that. But but yeah, it's it's pretty much ready to go. You get a cheap M2, uh, you know, 4G LTE modem and slap a SIM card in and you're off to the races. Okay, so this seems like a good proposition. It's just that $200 price tag versus what's uh, an 8 gigabyte of RAM Raspberry Pi these days? Like 80, something like that, 85? So... It's more than twice the price of a Pi, and yeah, you're going to get more than twice the performance, but all things considered, I can see why people are still choosing the Pi over boards like this. It depends what you're trying to do. Like uh, A Pi also doesn't come with 64 gigabytes of storage included, Mm, True, Uh, and it doesn't come with uh, Wi-Fi 5, which is what AC, right? Yeah, AC. It doesn't also come with Wi-Fi. It doesn't also come with Bluetooth. It doesn't also come with dual real Ethernet and uh, a SATA port and an M2 port. and and Two M2 ports, one SATA M2 port and one NVMe M2 port. You do get Wi-Fi and Bluetooth with a Raspberry Pi 4, oh, okay. to be fair. It's not the fastest Wi-Fi, but it's, it's reasonable. You can get a good 100 megabit through it. Right. But I guess it mostly comes down to what, what you're trying to build it for. Like you say, you know, it's not the best Wi-Fi on the Pi. Well, I mean, short of Wi-Fi 6, this actually is the best Wi-Fi. It's an Intel 9560, you know, 802.11ac plus Bluetooth. That's as good as you're going to find in, you know, high-end laptops. But I guess the other thing that we maybe glossed over a bit is that this includes real Intel graphics as well. Yes. So you're going to have much better accelerated graphics than you're going to get on a Raspberry Pi. 
And with open source drivers, unlike the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, and so when you when you mess around with these little ARM-based devices, um, you know, if you try to use them as a replacement desktop, like the Odroid um, N1 specifically build itself as, you know, no, this thing is really powerful enough to be a desktop replacement, but the GPU is where it falls down. I don't know to what degree that is GPU power versus crappy GPU drivers, but either way, that's not a problem you have here because you've got genuine Intel UHD 600. Um, I was driving 4K video on my 60-inch TV with this thing. Again, basically, it's the same graphics adapter you would have got in a laptop that had a quad-core processor. Yeah. Uh, of the same generation here. And so, really, this is a, a laptop without the laptop bits for 250 bucks. Oh, well, I think I'm sold on it. Um, I think when I next want to build something instead of ARM, I might think about one of these instead. This is... Definitely a lot cheaper than the Intel NUC that I bought to be my media center, which is basically the same thing, but with a case and, and fewer expansion options. Yeah, it does seem like a decent competitor to the NUCs, definitely. All right, so we've had some Backblaze stats again for Q2 of this year, and um, it's a little bit confusing, isn't it, looking at the website? Yeah, well, like they have two different graphs, and one says Backblaze quarterly annualized hard drive failure rate by manufacturer. And the second one says Backblaze cumulative annualized hardware or hard drive failure rate by manufacturer. And the graphs are very different. The second one's cumulative. Ah, uh, which basically just shows to how shows how noisy their data is. Because of the way they made up their own math for the annualized failure rate, they get really wonky numbers. Like if you look at the the raw data for uh, the most recent one, they have some uh, a small number of these uh, Seagate uh, 16 terabyte drives. And when they ran the stats for the first couple months, uh, you can see that they had one of the 59 drives fail. And so they calculate that as a 6.72% annualized failure rate, because in total, the drives had run for about 100 hours, which is awfully short, and, you know, kind of fits in that bathtub curve we expect on hard drives. Uh, and then they have the stats for a little bit later, uh, and you see that when those same 59 drives are now up to 10,000 hours, again, only the one has failed, but it's drastically changed what they consider the annualized failure rate to be. I think it's also really important to note when you look at these backblaze stats that make the HGST drives look so good. There's a reason for that. The HGST drives are actual... You know, it's it's hard to draw a line between, quote, NAS drives and, you know, enterprise drives. But either way you look at it, the HGST drives are solid. They are the kind of drives that a sensible person buys for real work, like in a NAS. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Western Digital and Seagate drives they buy are whatever random desktop trash they found for cheap. So it's not really about the manufacturer. It's about they're comparing garbage desktop drives to solid bulk storage drives. Yeah, that's part of it as well. I have machines full of those HGST 12 terabyte helium filled SAS drives. And I had total of two die in both after the five year warranty was expired. Or sorry, it was the six terabytes that I've had fail. I've not had any of the 12s fail yet. And that reflected in other people's experience too. The HGST drives are really, really good. But the other thing you mentioned earlier, uh, before the show was the fact that HGST got bought by Western Digital and you know, we're not yet seeing how big of a difference that's going to make. And certain models of Western digital drives are just don't exist anymore and are marketed as HGST. But are they going to keep having the better performance that we saw from the HGST drives or are we in for the, the terribleness? 
But uh, your other point is, yes, um, some of these drives are definitely more the end user focused drives. But when you look at the numbers here, especially cumulatively, when you're looking over a long enough time to, to be statistically significant, the desktop 12 terabyte drives only have a failure rate of about double, you know, uh, 2% instead of, uh, you know, 1%. And is the price difference worth that? If, if you can handle swapping out some drives, uh, is probably worth it to get the cheaper drive uh, and not pay the premium and just know that there's a higher chance of failure. But maybe at this point, as Backblaze is getting up to scale, we're now, you know, they're having to replace thousands of drives a day because of that 2% failure rate. It might make sense for them to spend the money uh, on hard drives that will last longer just because it will be fewer person hours of running around replacing all these failed drives. There is also a significant performance difference between a Seagate compute drive, which is what those are. They're, you know, desktop barracudas that they label as compute now, which is kind of a strange thing to say about a hard drive. But um, there is a huge performance delta between those things and anybody's NAS drive, whether it's a Western Digital non-SMR, you know, Red, now Red Plus, or a Seagate Ironwolf or, or whatever. It is an entirely different product and. I feel like it's important to let people know, yes, I would say in most cases, it is absolutely worth spending the small amount of extra money to get a high quality drive. I have done it both ways and I only buy NAS drives now. Well, yeah, especially after the other tomfoolery, but even before that, uh, for sure, the NAS drives are just, you know, <laughs> you can sleep at night when you have them as opposed to when you don't. Exactly. So... That's the, like, if you're looking at their numbers here, I think the, the Seagate ones that are the DM or DX are the desktop ones. And the ones that mm -hmm. are NM are the more NAS type ones. Although I think the, like the 12 terabyte ones that they're using there, the, the 0008 is a, the Exos, which is Seagate's more enterprise targeted drives. Yeah. That's, that's an Exos, uh, 4K N SATA drive. The thing that you have to be careful of with either Seagate Exos or Western Digital Ultrastar, what Enterprise really means there is you better read the data sheet because um, both the Exos line and the Ultrastar line can be literally just about any combination of, you know, specifications and uh, architecture and you name it, because they're intended to be sold to people who buy them in lots of, you know, a thousand, ten thousand, whatever, and don't care what marketing says, they are reading the data sheets. So like if you're trying to avoid SMR drives, um, there you can you can avoid SMR by buying the right branding. Like if you buy Western Digital Gold, that's not going to be SMR. If you buy uh, Western Digital Red Plus or Red Pro, it won't be SMR. You can buy Seagate Ironwolf or Ironwolf Pro and it won't be SMR. But if you get Exos or you get Ultrastar, despite it saying Enterprise, it may or it may not be SMR, and it may be host-managed SMR. It may literally not work if you plug it into your computer, if you're not careful what you buy. Yeah. And usually the other thing you get with an Enterprise drive is you're looking at usually a three- or five-year warranty instead of one or two. So the big takeaway that most of the tech sites seem to have had is this down-and-to-the-right trend. Backblaze say, for all manufacturers, you can see a downward trend in average failure rate over time. And that isn't really necessarily true, is it? It's probably mostly true. Like at this point, 
the recording technology that they were using for the drives that Backblaze has here is quite mature and uh, density is getting better and reliability is getting better. What will be interesting to see is as we get into these more exotic things, whether it's energy assisted or just, uh, I don't know, EPMBR or whatever that uh, uh, Western Digital also been talking about, that can change a lot here. And also, you know, there's, I guess we're pretty well past it now, but there was the time uh, during the, the floods in Thailand where Backblaze was buying like external USB drives and chucking them out of the cases and then using those <laughs> and not keeping the stats for those separate from drives that were bought as internal hard drives. And that uh, muddied up some of the numbers quite a bit. And if you ever want to get yelled at, just come to RZFS and tell my newbies, oh, you should just shuck your drives. That's totally the best thing to do and leave it at that. I will yell at you. <laughs> For sure. Okay, this episode is sponsored by TrueNAS from iX Systems. Go to TrueNAS.com. TrueNAS and FreeNAS have now unified as TrueNAS, the number one open storage OS. TrueNAS uses the power and reliability of OpenZFS to bring open source economics to enterprise-grade unified storage with support for file, block, object, and app storage. You can use the free TrueNAS Core Edition or invest in a TrueNAS Enterprise system. Coming soon is TrueNAS Scale, which provides open, hyper-converged infrastructure with support for Linux containers, and you can follow the development, try out, and contribute to this exciting project. Check out TrueNAS.com and see how TrueNAS can support your next storage project, whether it's just a few terabytes all the way up to multiple petabytes. That's truenas.com. Let's do a bit of free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, you can do so at show at 2.5admins.com. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon. There's details for that at 2.5admins.com. And if you support us for $5 or more, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So go and check that out. And thank you to everyone who has been supporting us. It's very much appreciated. So the first question is from Tim. He says, I run Ubuntu on ZFS and that works really nicely with the snapshots. I would like to learn how I can do that myself on my Arch system. I use the two articles from John Ramsden to get this done. For some reason, I keep getting into problems when I'm working in a Cheroot and fail to sign the unofficial repository key. Can you help with that? I would also like to know if I can do the snapshots on ZFS without running the OS rooted on ZFS. Well, I'm going to tackle the second part of the question first. That's the easy one. You can absolutely tackle snapshots yourself without the OS itself needing to be on ZFS. That's still the way I do all of my own installations. I don't personally feel that uh, root on ZFS is mature enough in the Linux world, even in Ubuntu, to want to run that way in production. But um, on a typical system, like I'll have my home directory be on ZFS and I manage my snapshots automatically with surprise, surprise, my own project Sanoid. And that's very easy to do on any distribution. You don't have to have anybody's particular ZFS installation. Uh, Sanoid will just manage things for you. You can, uh, in, in a very few lines in a very human readable config file, you can say things like, use template production and you can define template production to mean I want 30 daily snapshots, 30 hourly snapshots and three monthly snapshots. And it will take them for you and it will get rid of them for you when they're too old. And Sanoid is written in a real cutting edge, modern language, eh? Only the finest of artisanal handcrafted Perl 5 code. <laughs> nice. 
Zetavis snapshots can be created manually as well. And what I like about the way uh, tools like Sanoid work in general is any snapshots I create myself don't get touched by the automated system, right? They're, they're looking at the snapshots they created and cleaning them up, but any manual ones I also happen to add stay there uh, as well. And then you can also do uh, in ZFS what's called a hold, uh, where you can actually uh, basically lock a snapshot and say, you know, here's a tag explaining why it's locked. And unless somebody manually releases that lock, that snapshot can't be deleted even by an automated process or by even another administrator. You'll be told that snapshot is busy because somebody has put a hold on it. Uh, and that's really helpful when you're doing uh, replication based on those automated snapshots. If you get behind for some reason, like a, a link was down or uh, the backup machine had to go offline for a week, uh, you want to make sure that the incremental snapshots don't go away on you uh, until you can replicate them to the other side. And to Alan's point, uh, I can't necessarily speak for everybody's snapshot, uh, you know, orchestration engine out there, but for Sanoid in particular, not touching snapshots that Sanoid didn't create itself was specifically a design goal. If you manually create a snapshot, unless you are very careful to name it exactly like a Sanoid snapshot would be named and follow the policies exactly, Sanoid will not recognize it as one of its and will never delete that snapshot. What about the first question then about uh, ZFS on root on Arch? You know, honestly, I don't have any useful input on that one. Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I don't even think Ubuntu's ZFS on root is uh, mature enough for production use yet, personally. Well, neither do they, to be fair. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's that's not that's not really a, a slam on Ubuntu. I'm just saying it, it's not something that uh, it's not something I'm very interested in doing. So I don't have a lot of experience in doing it. Uh, BSD has a much more mature ZFS on root process over there. But on the Linux side, honestly, I don't think the ZFS route is valuable enough to cowboy it around right now. You're better off just getting the things you really care about on ZFS and let the OS be the OS. The level of integration required between the OS uh, and the file system to make the root stuff work, especially in the case of when you have kernel updates and so on, FreeBSD always had the advantage that the version of ZFS that's built in is always perfectly in sync with the kernel. So when you update one, it updates, you know, basically ZFS is part of the kernel in BSD. With Linux, that's not the case. And it means when they get out of sync, you can't mount your file system. And it's even if you have the right module there, if it's not in your init RAM FS or whatever, you get all kinds of bootstrapping issues and it's just not worth it. You know, on Ubuntu, that's largely a, a thing of the past because you'll usually be using ZFS, you know, right out of Canonical's repos mm -hmm. and it will do just fine from kernel to kernel. In fact, the headers are integrated into Canonical's kernels already. But my experience on ZFS on Linux predates that by a good degree. So I'm very familiar with what it's like to run DKMS ZFS, which is what you'll be dealing with on Arch. And every once in a while, you're going to have an issue where the module didn't build right for the next kernel. Now, if that happens when you have a system that boots from ext4, then you go, ah, oh, my pool didn't mount. And you're in your fully functional system dealing with that. It's a non-issue. You build the module, you go on with your life. If you've got ZFS on root and your ZFS module didn't build right for the next kernel on DKMS, then now you have a system that does not boot and you're sitting there at like a busy box prompt trying to fix things. That sucks. Yeah. Hopefully you have a, a, a ZFS capable live CD around somewhere and you can get enough of a system together to, to fix the kernel module or whatever. Yeah, and a time machine to use a CD. So yeah, good advice. Mm -hmm. All right, well, a related one from Bryce. Uh, I noticed on Ubuntu 20.04, 
ZSYS is not taking snapshots of pools and datasets I manually created. Is there any issue installing Sanoid on Ubuntu 20.04 with ZSYS installed? I would only configure Sanoid to snapshot my manually created datasets and let ZSYS do its thing on the system-created datasets. There is no issue with that, and uh, that's correct. Uh, ZSYS will not take snapshots on any pools. Um, not necessarily any datasets, but it definitely won't take snapshots outside the B pool and R pool that Ubuntu's installer creates. Um, what it does on datasets beneath that is a rather more complex question. But more to the point, yes, you can absolutely use both Sanoid and ZSYS. If you wanted to, there's not even any reason that you can't use Sanoid on R pool and B pool as well. Because like what we just talked about, where um, Sanoid only manages the snapshots it created, you can have it create snapshots and, you know, the two tools shouldn't interfere with each other. They will just possibly create twice as many snapshots. Which is less of an issue than it sounds like, because, yeah. uh, you know, the, most of that data will be duplicated between the snapshots. So you don't actually increase your space usage all that much. The big problem is going to be strictly with ZSYS itself as far as that goes, because right now ZSYS never cleans up its own snapshots. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need to manually clean those up. That's presumably fairly easy to script, though. If it was that easy to script, then uh, ZSYS would already actually be doing that rather than just have stubs for doing it that they haven't put into production yet because they're worried about accidentally deleting too much data. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, maybe I need to find the right people at Ubuntu and have a quick talk with them because you can do things like sort the snapshots by creation time and then be like, definitely don't touch the 20 newest snapshots and then prune anything that's older than this or something uh, without too much complexity. And part of it might be that you need to, A, look for snapshots you created, and B, in cases where you do need to keep something older, is actually use that ZFS hold system to be able to lock a snapshot. And then, you know, if ZSYS goes to delete it and it sees that it's locked, it will just skip it and keep going. The problem space is not really that simple, Alan. Um, if you look at the actual snapshot, uh, not snapshot, if you look at the actual dataset structure they create, it's kind of monstrous. Um, their ultimate goal for ZSYS is not really to just orchestrate traditional ZFS snapshots, but to have kind of a higher level overall system for managing an entire system state. So it's not just about deleting snapshots of a given date. It's about questions like, well, do I delete this snapshot for, you know, these literally 20 different data sets on, you know, the root pool outside the home directory? Um, only some of them. Do I also delete the ones from the home directory? In order to manage things the way they want to manage it is this kind of, you know, gestalt hole rather than on an individual data set basis, it gets a lot more complex. So for right now, it never deletes anything. Um, the, the calls for deleting are there, but they're, they're never called yet. They will be. I, I, the guy who's developing this stuff, the, uh, at, at least the primary developer is, uh, DA Rocher. I've, I've spoken to him at some length about it and he's just, he's being cautious right now. Yeah. Uh, especially with anything automated like that. If somebody's depending on that snapshot, having it not be there when they want it, it's the first rule of file systems. You curdle somebody's files once and they will never trust you again. Yeah, I spent a ridiculous amount of time just bashing through every scenario I could possibly think of uh, when I first developed Sanoid, you know, around the pruning process and being like, I need to make absolutely sure this never prunes anything I don't want it to. And it, it that sounds trivial, but once you really get into it, the, there turn out to be more corner cases than you expected. Yeah. 
what if I ever screw up this regex? Make sure it's not going to just delete everything. Right. Or like, you know, what if I say I have a policy that I want to keep, you know, the most recent 20 daily snapshots. What if my system actually took 20 daily snapshots in one day? Do I, I need to make sure that I don't delete all the ones before that. And I've technically got 20 dailies, but they're all from the same day. And they're, yeah, not what I meant. <laughs> yeah. Do, do what I mean, not what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and do what I mean, not what I say takes an awful lot of care when you're doing the actual coding. And, and you also want it to end up being not a surprise to the uh, administrator when it does what you thought they meant, not what they said. Right. All right, well, we better get out of here then. If you want to send your questions for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com is the best way. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.